2: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast and happy International Women's Day to all of you. This is Rosheen Ingle here and we are delighted to be bringing you our special live episode which we recorded last week in the Oak Room in the Mansion House with thanks to our gracious host, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Caroline Conway. The episode was a celebration of 50 years of Irish feminism to mark the 50-year anniversary of the National Women's Council. Our guests were Sonia Lennon, who is a well-known fashion designer, businesswoman, entrepreneur and all-round disruptor. Sonia is an expert voice on the pay gap and the founder of Work Equal. Tara Flynn is no stranger to this podcast, comedian, actor, writer and podcaster and one of the key people who in courageously telling her own story of abortion in the lead-up to the repeal the 8th referendum in 2018, helped change hearts and minds... With Marion Keyes, she hosts the usually popular Now You're Asking podcast on Radio 4. Susie Byrne has been a community worker, disability and equality campaigner for the last 30 years. And she's also a director of Road Erin, one of the first disabled people to be specifically recruited to a state public transport board. And finally, Dr Salome bugwa is a researcher, gender equality activist and human rights advocate. She's the CEO and founder of Akidwa, the Migrant Women's Network Ireland and has over 20 years experience working with underrepresented groups, in particular women, children and the youth in Europe, Africa and beyond. We were also joined by the brilliant Orla O'Connor of the National Women's Council. But before we got started with all of those brilliant guests, Sonia Lennon gave us a wonderful insight into what life was like for women in Ireland in 1973. It was a very different place, as you can imagine. And as some of you listeners will understand from having experienced it, it was a time when you had to leave your job if you were married because of the marriage bar. You couldn't rent a television without your husband's permission. And you had absolutely no access to contraception. Sonia took on the persona of a young woman from 1973 called Jenny and she told us all about her life back in the day.
1: I'm a little nervous. I'm not used to speaking in public. (laughs) Um, My name's Jenny. I'm uh, 24. I live in Glasnevin uh, with my husband Liam and our three kids. (laughs) She can't believe I'm saying I have three kids at 24, to be honest with you. Um oh, They're great. They're brilliant. Between us, I didn't want them. <laughs> but look, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. I definitely wasn't ready for them. And I'm not sure I'm ready to be a mother, to be honest with you. But I have good, good backing, good grounding. Um, my parents were great, I have to say. And they really, I suppose instilled in me the value of education you know and uh, they were really passionate about me achieving a lot and uh, after school I went and did the uh, civil service exams I don't tell an no a lot of people this and uh, it's a bit embarrassing but I came fifth in the country and uh, oh god I love my job to be honest with you it was amazing I have three sisters and I'm the only one of us who uh, who worked who's ever worked you know and it kind of felt like I was doing something important you know like in the civil service service you can actually you can do stuff you know you're, you're part of change and um, anyway I met Liam and he's great and we got married so that was the end of that to be honest with you um, that chapter was over and we had the kids and that's great and he's brilliant like he is brilliant he works really hard and actually, it's quite exciting because we're about to get our first telly and uh, we just have to wait for a day that Liam's available to sign the forms and um, then we'll have it. But it's mad, you know, I'm 24 and this is it. It's not the plan I had, you know. And you look left to America and you look right to the UK and you think... It's exploding. There's a revolution, you know? And here, just feels like a big thumb pushing down. I don't know what to do, except keep on going. It's 1973, and the only thing I know for sure is that this world was not designed for women.
2: That was Jenny there, a.k.a. Sonia Lennon, to start off our live event. Actually, the first one we've had since the pandemic. And wasn't that a wonderful insight into life in 1973? I think Sonia has an alternative career beckoning. I think you're really going to enjoy our event. Cathy Sheridan and I just had such a brilliant time hosting it. Our producers were calling us the Ant and Deck of the Mansion House for the night. It was a really fantastic evening and I know you're going to really enjoy it. Cathy and I began by asking our special musical guest and proud member of the travelling community, Sharon Ward, to tell us about how life for Traveller Women has changed in the past 50 years.
3: The Traveller Women, they took on, you know, newer roles. So our role usually is just stay home with the children and cook and clean and do all that stuff. And the man does all the outdoor stuff. So I think... In the last 50 years, women are kind of like, mm, no, this is not enough. I need something outside of this. So, yeah, I can still be a mother and do all them things, but I'm going to go and chase my dreams. So I think a lot of Traveller women have stepped forward and took step outside of getting married young and things like that, and for good and bad reasons. But, I mean, yeah, things has changed a lot for Traveller women. Like, they're more courageous now a bit yes bolder as we'd yeah. say down the country <laughs> Do you know like we just we want to find our place like in the world now not only but in inside our own community we have a lot of you know things that need to be done like you'd have some women saying you know i should be at home with children and stuff mm-hmm. and then you have other women like us are like i go away out that and go and find you follow your dream yourself so things have yes. changed a lot mm-hmm. years ago it would have been for me to be a singer 50 years ago, it wouldn't have probably happened. You wouldn't have known any contacts. You kind of, Traveller community, were a very private community. Due to discrimination and stuff, we just kind of stuck to ourselves. We wouldn't have had anyone to... Like, I had somebody, a non-Traveler, encourage me to do this competition. And thanks be to God, including all yourselves, I've been very lucky to meet lovely people who have helped me. I don't think a Traveller woman 50 years ago would have... Like Margaret Barry, for instance... Um, would she have had as much help in her time as I'd have offered to me now? I don't think so. So, yeah, I think a lot's changed for traveller women. And the main one is that we're getting a little bit bolder in ourselves. <laughs> Standing up a little bit more. But even to our husband's kind of a home, usually, you know, that's our role. Well, now I'd be a bit like, well, I have things to do today, so you're going to have to do the school run. Or if I'm not going to get to cook dinner today, we you're going to have to get a chipper, and that's just it. Like, you know, whereas... Years ago, you had to do all that first. I think we're definitely getting a bit tougher. Um, Shana, are you going to sing something? I am going to sing. So one of my favourite singers in the whole world is Luke Kelly. And this is one of my favourite songs of Luke Kelly's. So I'll sing it. It's called The Night Visiting Song.
4: I must do it now I can no longer tarry This morning's tempest I have to cross I must be guided Without a stumble Into the arms I love the most And when he came to His true love's dwelling. He knelt down gently upon a stone. And through her window, he whispered lowly, is my true love.
2: Oh, that was just gorgeous thank you so much Sharon for coming and you're going to sing another song so that's not the last you've heard of her and what a beautiful um opening to our event I want to talk now to another woman of the air because we are here because we're together with the National Women's Council who were founded 50 years ago and um, the person who is at the helm now Orla O'Connor who's a legend in her own right um, as we know from repeal as well. uh, I wanted to ask you because I was looking it up it wasn't called the National Women's Council when it started in 1973. Tell us about the start and then if you can bring us all the way up in terms of the achievements of the NWC in that 50 years so a whistle top tour Orla.
5: The National Women's Council so in 1973 it was formed through a number of organisations and in a way, though, the group of organisations, because you'd aim in terms of family reform, you had the Irish women graduates, you you had the Irish... Uh, Women's Political Association. There was a real diversity of organisations then and I mean in some ways while lots has changed in the Women's Council ultimately that's who we are. We're a membership organisation and now there's 190 members. Back then there was 15 to 20 members originally started so it really started as that membership organisation and remained so. But you know obviously as in Looking at our 50 years, we've been looking back at what Ireland was like and there were moments over the last month and even today where I've been, you know, talking to... Um, members of the team and the Women's Council and having that conversation of, are you sure you're right? Was it actually like that? Because, you know, some of the things are really, you know, it's quite incredible, I think, to think of in terms of, and we know obviously a really big one, which was the big campaign at the time in 73 was the marriage bar um, and the fact that women couldn't work when they got married in in the state service. But that was replicated in, in many private sector companies. And, and we still live with that legacy today in so much of our work in terms of pension rights. But um, when the Women's Council was formed, it was formed, it was a group of volunteers. And at the time when the government established the Commission for the Status of Women, which was the first sort of really big, I suppose, consideration and report in Ireland as on the status of women, and the issues that are in that report back in '73 are issues that we're still talking about today, while there has been many changes. So things like family reform, which was... So there was mentions in terms of domestic violence. Also in terms of women's representation, care was there. They were the issues back then. As an outcome of of that report, the government agreed to pay a secretary for these groups that then went on to form the Council for, for the Status of Women, as it was then called. And then... The Women's Council has changed has changed massively really as an organization, both in terms of the growth of the membership, but also in terms of the diversity. And I think very much in the 90s and when the name got changed to what our name is now, the National Women's Council, it was really reflecting a diversity of community-based women's organizations that joined community education groups that were in so many working class communities around the country and also in rural areas. And then also diversity in terms of the women in Ireland. And Traveller Women were a real key part of the Women's Council in the 90s and have been since then. But also migrant women then and and the diversity has grown and grown. And so here we are now as an intersectional feminist organisation with a huge diversity in terms of our membership. And I think, you know, one of the things about our 50 years and we talk about so much has, has been achieved for women. And that's really, really positive. But where we are now, and that's why we say no woman left behind, is that we know for so many of women that those achievements aren't felt in the same way. So, you know, we know that it is very different for traveller women who still live 12 years less than a settled person. So the life expectancy is still low. And also we know there's a very different situation, for example, of the pay that migrant women earn in terms of the gender pay gap being even bigger for them. So that's very much, I think, where the Women's Council is in terms of looking at how changes have happened and that we're now in a place where there still is so much to be done, but there's also a very uneven pace of change. And that's where we're at in terms of imagining the future about what is our feminist future. And I suppose we're we're really asking people to do that as part of our 50 years. It's about recognising the past, but it's about imagining our future and what do we see as as a, a feminist
2: future for the next 50. Thanks very much, Orla. Um, when you can go back to your seat now in the Thank front row, you've a front row seat for this evening. Thanks very much, it's Orla O'Connor. Everybody, a round of applause. Um, We're really glad to be doing this with you and to be celebrating your 50 years. And I love that idea of imagining a feminist future. Like we have to look back. It's important. But again, we have to definitely look ahead.
0: Now, Sonia, we're going to start with you. And uh, as we're looking back in time this evening, we have a little cultural tidbit from the year everyone was born. And Sonia was born in the last weeks of 1968. Those were the days by Mary Hopkins in the charts. I bet you could all sing. Can you all sing?
2: Those oh, yeah. were the yeah, days, we my friend. I thought they'd never end. We sang and danced forever and a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, try the beef. We're here all week.
0: <laughs> the funny thing is, they weren't all that great now that we're, here, we're listening to all these stories. But anyway, it was a great song. <laughs> so, in Ireland, when you were born, Sonia, a few years before the Women's Council was founded, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that women were very much second-class citizens. What would you say are the biggest challenges women face now in today's Ireland and how close are we to solving them?
1: I'm going to start not with the problem because I really don't like talking about the problems. I like talking about the solutions more because we know what the problems are, I think. And I think one of the reasons to be optimistic now is the level of maturity of the conversations around equity and i feel like i'm on a kind of a world tour of of posh dining rooms to corporate entities at the moment uh, in my international women's day route around the city and in the sort of 10 or so years that i've been campaigning rooms are now fuller and fuller and fuller with men who want to be part of the solution and i think that we have an opportunity to leverage those that get it to expedite change and in Equal, we did a piece of research which showed that 74% of the population want to see closing the gender pay gap as a priority of business and government. Now, that's a really whopping percentage. That means that men and women want to see this over, and I think we need to acknowledge that, wrap our,
0: our arms around everybody, and let all boats rise. Right. Now, I think a lot of us here are fascinated by Iceland, which I think is the third happiest nation in the world, among other things. But it also seems to be utterly perfect from all sorts of angles. And you had a really interesting trip there recently, a very high-powered... Very high-powered. Rupert, you went there. Very. Uh, and listen, we nearly very we nearly people. cancelled each other out. <laughs> we were so high-powered. <laughs> well, it's the most gender equal country in the world for the last of ten American years. years. Yeah. yeah. So, so they and we
1: went on a sort of a study tour to understand uh, what were the big levers that had made this seismic change, and it was really important for us to see it from multiple perspectives. And I think that's really important in all of this discussion to not look at one group and you know orla talked about that in terms of intersectionality and how can we speak to all stakeholders and say yes this is the right thing to do but we spoke to trade unions we spoke to industry bodies we spoke to elected ministers the women's council in iceland and the prime minister and they all said the same thing and the three big levers for change were as written in the irish times were Legislation for shared parental leave on a use-it-or-lose-it non-transferable basis to the point where a man is a social pariah if he doesn't do his duty in early childhood care. And in fact, they don't call it early childcare. They call it early years education because they see that education process starting from the age of two And that education starts from the age of two with government-funded, accessible, affordable, sustainable childcare for all on a tiered payment basis depending on needs and available funds. And the third thing I think which is really interesting given that 74% stat is a kite mark for equality on goods and services. So that means that we, they, consumers, can vote with our pockets for companies that do what they do in an equitable way.
2: Did you go to the Blue Lagoon? Sorry, no, of that's a bit off topic. <laughs> <laughs> of course. We went there
1: on the Sunday. We arrived on the Sunday. And I had booked it months ago because Brendan had actually been in Iceland a few months ago. And he said, word to the wise, if you're going to Iceland, book the Blue Lagoon in advance. It's really popular. And then we got back to the hotel after the Blue Lagoon, which is phenomenal. And I said, okay, Northern Lights. This is. We start work tomorrow. We're going to work from... Tomorrow morning, crack of dawn until we leave this place. Let's hop on a bus and go and see the Northern Lights. And we did. We booked, booked tours. And and what I found really fascinating about Iceland, I didn't want to stay there. I love Dublin. I love it. I love living in Dublin. I love the progress. I love the fact that we are the plastic bag nation that can make change when we all put our, you know, all put our grit behind it. We can do this. Like, we really can, and the will is there. But on the, on the bus, we're all, all the, cross-party practice committee are sitting like best girls up to th- top of the bus to have a look at the northern lights and the guide was amazing and she said uh, oh you know I, I just came back from a sweat lodge mm-hmm. we ha- we have a rehabilitation service for um people recovering from drug addiction and it's a great way for them to reintegrate into society you know we just use heat and cold and there's absolutely it's a drug-free sweat lodge and and it's just amazing to see people opening up and The driver, who is an Icelandic man, just said to her, wow, that is amazing. You're incredible. And I just thought, why does that sound so weird? Why does that sound weird to me? What man? Have I ever heard saying that to a woman in Dublin?
0: Yeah, it does sound weird. Doesn't it? it? It's because we would think that's just a bit much. No, I'll tell you what it is.
1: I'll tell you what it is. He didn't feel threatened by her. His sort of machismo had been disarmed by the normalisation of equity and equitable society. So he was able to freely say to her, you're an amazing woman, and it's okay for me to say
2: that. Well, fair play to the bus driver.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I still think it's a bit much. I think we should bring in another amazing woman now, uh, Tara Flynn. That was a good segue into you, and I was trying to think of—I was trying to find what um, I had your wrong date of birth, so I was going to talk about Dana. Yes. It's a slightly a year off, but she won. Thank you very much, Sonny, By the way, uh, she won the um, Eurovision Song Contest the year after you were born, yes. and I was thinking of Dana as like the best girl, the Colleen uh, Das, and was she kind of the yes, epitome so of?
6: I believe that much was made around that time because we were probably still talking about the Eurovision win when I was about four or five. <laughs> Um, I was born in 1969, Dana was I think 1970, yeah. um, uh, with all kinds of everything, but that, that her name meant Bold, Donna, <gasps> Dana, um, and I really feel like she didn't really live up to that name as time went on. Um, there's quite a, a conservative drive there, as we all know at this stage, and fair play to her, I, you know, I, nothing against uh, Catholics, some of my best parents are Catholics, so... Um, <laughs> I, I- so she, no, uh, what I was taught, it was very much what others have mentioned on the panel already so far. There's that, there was that underlying, that low level hum. We all know about the spikes of abuse or cruelty that could be visited upon society by the church, but that low lying hum of shame and silence and everyone trying to be good because girls who were not good could end up in a magnet and laundry. They could have their baby taken to a mother and baby home. Uh, taken away from them we know all of those sort of bigger things what what was uh, prevalent though what I do remember even as a kid trying to be good trying to be very very good squeezing my eyes up tight going I'll be a good girl I'll be a good girl it didn't work out for me it didn't (laughs) didn't suit me but what I learned over time was that you don't get anything done if you're being a good acquiescent compliant girl it's nice to be nice and we love to say that here in Ireland don't know what they say in Iceland probably (laughs) good good um, I've watched a couple of Icelandic crime dramas, so I'm certain I speak <laughs> Almost it. fluent. Thank you, thank you. Um, no disrespect intended at all. But I, I, I really tried to be good. And it wasn't until I went, look, I think it's appropriate to be ashamed of our own behaviour if we do something we feel is wrong. Because feeling ashamed of former behaviour means we can maybe correct it, we can apologise, we can take ownership of it, move on and change. But shame belongs to other people. Shame is something someone tries to put on you. And shame was used in this country as a tool for silence, as a tool of misogyny, one of the major tools to keep women quiet, to keep us from not talking to each other, to keep us from not... How many families do we all know who... There was the sister who vanished for a few months and they came back and there was another younger sister in the house. And so that we don't even get to the horror stories perpetrated by the church. But that cult of silence was part of that system which was in place. And I feel that one of the biggest strengths we've had in the last 50 years is just refusing to stay quiet anymore, refusing to be good. Insisting on being done, <laughs>
2: brilliant. And just on that, you um did an amazing play—not a funny word—which is one of the best things I've ever seen. I don't know if anyone saw it here; it's just fantastic. But the words and the songs, the music was fantastic, and you you sang about shame in that. So, do you think we're done with it now? Do you feel like there's a because it's one thing that's still happening, and you did it, and I did it, and many people told mm. their stories. And whether it's the cervical screening or whether it's domestic violence or whatever issue, it still feels like women have to go out there. Turn themselves inside out, tell their stories in order for things to change. We're still at that level though, aren't we, Tara? Like it shouldn't have to be.
6: Yeah, it shouldn't like have that. to be like that. You should never you shouldn't have to discuss your most private moments, your medical history, your family background. You shouldn't all the things we are asked to do. But part of that is busting stigma and we still do have that job. Now we we can't no one person can do it. That's why I'm a big fan of collectives and groups, because we have to pick up the slack for each other people run out of steam and every activist on this panel knows how you can run out of steam and you need to pass that baton so i think that would be my rallying cry it always is every panel i do we have to share this burden part of that is in insisting that that if people do speak out they're somehow minded and and that that we take what we learned from the shaming of people in the past not just women but largely women that we take that and we learn that we don't have to keep that residual respect of someone who speaks with a with a a, a civil voice and nice words but they're saying something that's actually quite brutal they're maybe challenging someone's rights or trying to take them away but they're appearing they're fulfilling societal guidelines for respectable but what they're saying is not respectable at all and I'd love all us bold girls to go out and go yeah you're saying it in a nice way but it's not very nice. So to take some of that, uh, that we know that stigma busting is important, but while some of that is going on, we, we need to release some of our anger too. That we don't, we needn't just praise each other when we keep our cool. Sometimes we need to lose our cool and ask for more. And I think that all feeds into, it's from the same root. And it's a very long ago, very deeply ingrained root.
2: That's uh, really powerful and really important. The anger is important. And we see it in America now as well. We talked about Roe versus Wade being rode back and women speaking out and women being tone policed as as we were um, and repeal the eighth. And it's really funny to think, I know it's only a few years ago, but you remember there was people who didn't, wouldn't wouldn't talk about it, who said, oh, I can't really talk about it. There were... They were loads, yeah. loads.
6: And I mean, that made us, I know, feel very isolated and alone. And then we were sort of pariahs in a way. <laughs> because... A lot of the media, um, and, and this is something worth noting, I think, they still defaulted to anti-choice was the correct and respectable position, even mm. if that wasn't a, a, a position they held themselves. And they were trying; they were saying they were being impartial, but they actually weren't being impartial. Mm. And it was really fascinating. It's happening in the U.S. again now that that fundamentalist Christians are rolling back rights, right, left and centre, all over the place. But they're because they're God-fearing people, they're being endowed with that, like I was saying, that respectability, when what they're doing and saying is not respectable to me at all. I was at another event today, and I met this uh,
2: amazing woman called Mabuba, who we've had on the podcast, if any of you heard her. Um, she's from Afghanistan, and she's here because she had to flee the Taliban. And, you know, you just, as um, Carla mentioned earlier, like the, it's exactly that, dehumanising women, pushing them down to a point where they're not even seen in parks or gyms or on the street. Their eyes can just barely peer out of their hijabs and the niqabs and all that.
6: Um, or in the US recently, arrests on beaches for women wearing bikinis that people are going... <laughs> Your attempted arrest, being, the cops being called. And we all know how that can end in the US. And it's like, it's absolutely mind boggling. We don't have to look. And I know Mona el Tahawi who, mm-hmm. who you've had on as well, who's absolutely brilliant. But she talks about we, we can't talk about the Middle East unless we look at where it is happening in closer to home or yeah. people who look like us you know the broad the broader sort of irish um <laughs> the irish american uh the sort of traditional irish american it's it's just interesting to see names that are that could be our cousins fighting to roll back rights when we've had to fight so hard for our own so recently it is extraordinary and an absolute
0: pressing reminder that that we can go backwards always I think this is really important to remember, that we should never, ever be complacent, which is why I think we should have one of these gatherings every week. And
2: that's why talking to Mabuba today, you know, it was a group of women, very high-powered women, who were in positions, senior positions in various industries, you know, the, she was very clearly able to draw the line from what's happened to her. It's it's an example of where misogyny is winning, where sexism is winning. Where it's a, And it can happen, and it, we can't be just sitting around going, oh, that's far away in Afghanistan, you know?
6: I think it is useful to see it not as progress, with, and that we're ever inching forward, but as that pendulum people talk about, the pendulum of justice, and it is always swinging back and forth. Mm. And we have to be braced, we have to be ready, we have to have the marching shoes and the placards. <laughs> in the hallway at all times
2: exactly, um, I think we should move on to Susie and ask okay. her about the tea trolley
0: <laughs> Susie, this could turn into a three hour session about Erin Roderian and it's service, but we won't do that because you are a Dana era baby and you did get the Donna in you, didn't you um, will you tell us a bit about life in Ireland when you were born and what life was like for you and for women with disabilities in 1973 versus today
7: well, it was one of institutionalisation, one of short lives for many women that were born with a disability. And I suppose one where you've seen the people campaigning for the recognition and the apology who were, you know, people who were born with the effects of thalidomide, you know, um, and what they've been saying about their lives over, you know, the past, what, 60 years. But in the, I suppose, in the 70s and 80s, one of segregation as well in terms of special education um, and looking at the institutionalisation, like so many other times in the history of the state, you know, disabled people, disabled women were institutionalised. And I think also there was an issue of disabled women were given different opportunities to disabled men, even access to wheelchairs, and that's still an issue to this day, that disabled men often get better wheelchairs that do more things disabled women do you know and there's a whole issue in the narrative of rehabilitation and the construction of maleness and rehabilitation if you look at the history of Paralympics and rehabilitation of men coming back from war like the only reason we had personal assistance and the whole personal assistant movement was because of male veterans returning from the Vietnam War in America and their campaign because they didn't want to go back to, or they didn't want to go to lies where they couldn't do anything, so they campaigned for personal assistance, and that personal assistant movement then spread through, throughout, you know. But I'm not saying that things are have changed much in terms of institutionalisation now, because the family home is now the institution for disabled people in very many ways.
0: Explain that, Susie.
7: Because we're living longer, thanks to public health, miracles, all those sorts of things, but the state in closing institutions has very silently told families and told parents and told disabled people, you will remain infantilised within your family home and you will only end up with the supports when your family are no longer there for you. Your able-bodied sisters and brothers can get on with their lives, can apply for housing or, and you won't know, get much housing now because of the crisis it is, but disabled people are being told they won't get the supports to live independently not to have expectations that, you know, if they do have supports, that those supports will have them have socialised or community connections. It'll be more about getting you up, getting you dressed, and that's it. And you can online shop and you can microwave your food because you're not going to get personal assistance. And mums and dads are being told that they're, they're, there's nobody ever asks a disabled person when they're 18 what you want to do with your life. Other than education, education has been amazing for people with disabilities and increased expectations. But the amount of um, unemployment amongst disabled people is shocking in terms of the right to have to get a job, keep a job. And there's a lot of corporate social responsibility stuff about hiring disabled people. But a lot of us feel that that is very tokenistic about ticking boxes. And the reality is that everything has got to be made accessible and not just You know, having a job does not get rid of your disability. Having a job doesn't make transport accessible. It doesn't make social care available. It doesn't make your attitudes to your right to make a decision. And that's a huge issue for 2023. We're now bringing the Assisted Decision Making Act that's about to commence next month. And that will bring, hopefully, lots of rights for disabled people to be seen as decision makers in their own lives. But under the Disability Act and all of these legislation we do have, we don't have a right to any services or anything. So the state has just said, you will stay at home unless you kick down the door yourself and you're able to get out and provide for yourself. Mm. And it's, you know, disabled women's access to contraception, to reproductive services, all of those things are very different to able-bodied women. And, you know, all of those issues are still there for people to to deal with and the discussions and I mean there are some amazing young disabled women mm. who have fought I met through Together for Yes and all of those campaigns and you know that are educating each other and are turning up and they're going into our Octus committees and they're doing amazing things but the situation until we ensure that people have the right to decide for themselves what they want to do with their lives and that they are not treated as children for all of their lives by the state. You know, there's there's huge changes still needed. And I'd say a lot of people still feel that, you know, we're still back in the 70s still with a lot of the attitudes. The charity model still exists, you
0: know. Susan, we could keep you here for four days because you represent several sectors, really. I mean, uh, it's the 30th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality and you are one of the co-chairs of the gay and lesbian equality network during the later stages of that campaign for decriminalization so you've really you've really been out there in the most sensitive areas can you talk about how life has improved for the lgbt plus community particularly for lesbian women
2: yeah because i don't think we talk
7: enough about lesbians lesbians 30 years ago i think it's important to yeah. talk about it, and I was just talking to Jerome, who's in the audience uh, tonight, about what it was like to be a woman in the Women's Council at the time, a lesbian woman, right? There were lesbian organisations who were, would rather not be seen or heard within the Women's Council at that time. I remember being in a room with Jar and some other lesbian women trying to write a submission into the National Women's Health Strategy in the early 90s, because we weren't sure that the Women's Council or anybody else would mention lesbian women's health you know and what's changed now is that the women's council and lots of other women's organizations do talk about lesbian women's issues but i still think they're very invisible mm. even now in terms of the organizations and i i remember being told i was the wrong type of lesbian woman oh what's the, the right type what's the right type of lesbian well there were i guess i'm sure we're women we're we're awful good at telling each other who's good and who's
0: bad ourselves, right? To put it mildly. That's a much neglected point, that other women can be very critical. Absolutely. And so there
7: were separatist women who told me because I was an activist in Glen and active on gay men's rights, I wasn't the right type of lesbian woman, okay? So then there were Other women who told me that I shouldn't be talking about being a lesbian, I was told I wasn't Irish. I was one of the people that organised the first entry into the Paddy's Day Parade here in Dublin, which is 30 years this year as well, right? Wow. In the Dublin Parade. And we did it because of what was happening in New York, because our sisters and brothers in New York were being told that they weren't Irish either, right? So there was a whole thing around that you weren't female enough, lesbian enough. And then there was all these issues around, for me personally, as a woman who never had a period, was I really a woman, right? And that's a very issue now when you talk about intersex issues, Mm. non-binary, trans issues. And we're back here now in 2023 telling women who can be women and who can't be women. Mm. And we'll be back telling lesbian women whether they can be women or not because we're seeing what's happening to trans and non-binary people and Mm. they're coming for the lesbians next because we're easy to pick off, you know, and... All, like it, that's what I think it, what it feels like I think to a lot of people in the LGBT community yeah, now yeah. when they are watching what's happening trans and non-binary people that they will come for lesbians they will come for gay men they will tell us and they will eradicate us from education from health from the workplace all of the rights and we didn't want anything special for ourselves it was equality that we campaigned for mm. and I think a lot of people thought I mean i I wasn't a huge supporter around marriage equality, right? And I see marriage as a patriarchal yes, institution. Yes. But one of my main issues around the marriage debate was I knew it wasn't going to make everything wonderful, you know. And I think it's very important. I'm one of the last people in the country to have a civil partnership. I ran <laughs> and got it organised so that I didn't have to get married, right? And I needed to get legal rights sorted or whatever, you know. And I would celebrate my friends' weddings and I wouldn't even call my thing. It was a whole joke about the do because I wouldn't call it a wedding. It wasn't a wedding. It was never going to be. But when I see the homophobia that young people are experiencing now and the fear that they have, mm. but also their bravery, they are amazing, the young people that are coming out today and are doing their thing, like me and my friends did 30 years ago. And I hope they can continue to do that. But I'm just very fearful that there will be such um, a rowing back Mm-hmm. And you know a claim and a grab that people feel challenged. And I know that people who oppose us are afraid, but there's no reason to be afraid. And I think we just have to keep fighting for equality. Nothing mm-hmm. special for people; just that everybody should be granted the right okay. to equality.
2: Salome has to get a bus at some point tonight so I'm just very conscious that I want to bring you in Salome and I think it follows on nicely from what Susie's talking about which is diversity. So first of all maybe you might tell everyone about you coming to Ireland in the 90s, what kind of a place it was, how you've seen changes happening. I mean you didn't expect you would stay here but you did end up marrying an Irishman and uh, coming here. So tell us a bit about yourself and, and let everyone know your story. Ireland
8: actually was a very, very uh, different place in 1994. And I arrived in Ireland uh, thinking that uh, almost everybody should be a nun or a priest. So I had this style, you know, when I when I was coming, the few days before I came, I braided my hair very long. And then I, brought, I bought this very long chain. It was a cross uh, so that I can maybe identify, you know, with Irish <laughs> people when I arrive here. But I came to learn that, you know, most of them don't go to the church. You know, I was going to the church almost, you know, with not many people, you know, where I was going. And I came to realize that it wasn't actually the way I thought. When I came from Kenya, because I'm originally from Kenya, I was also very active in the women movement. I was already joining women in Kenya in demonstrating about issues of violence against women. Uh, and leader, like, uh, I had worked with uh, many, many women who were head of households. So when I came here, I wanted to know which are the organizations that are doing the magic, you know, because I was leading about the women movement, the global women movement of the 1960 and 1970, and I was comparing it in, with what was happening in Kenya. At that time, it was also very, very uh, funny because it was the time when uh, women, global women movement, was preparing to go to Beijing you know, for 1995, and they came up with these 12 critical areas of concern. And actually, um, it added me a job in Ireland, you won't believe. And that job was in Talamo, of all the other places. Um, And so I worked with the, you know, Irish women and travelers women and migrant women. And we started uh, Talamo Women's uh, Network in Talamo. So it was all very funny. I was trying to learn a lot of things. I really liked Irish women, because I found them very courageous. I also found them, you know, like we could drink pints, you know, and, uh, you know, talk about things freely, because in Kenya, sometimes you cannot do that. And so I felt like I had a little bit of freedom, and freedom led me to many things, I tell you. And within all this time, you know, I was trying to check on, you know, how do we fit in as migrant women? And actually, one of the places I visited was the National Women's Council. Ola was still there. Um, And, uh, you know, we wanted to know how we can fit in you know as African women because that time Makido was the African women's network there were a lot of issues we were experiencing a lot of issues at the time you know um and I tried actually to gather from the women what was going on in their lives so we had this one woman African woman from one of the country who has been battered by the husband and she was finding it very very difficult to leave uh then another one had a shop a near Conley station and it had been fundraised you know, because they didn't want black people around the station, So our shop was so much fundraised, everything was taken away. There are also so many things, you know, issues of racism were so little. And we saw it actually at the time uh, in 2001, 2002, 2004 in particular, where, you know, the migrant women were used as a scapegoat that uh, the maternity hospitals uh, were overcrowded and they actually blamed on migrant women there were many issues. You know, we had migrant women uh, being verbally and physically abused, being followed in shops. Uh, We had also some of the public representatives for example saying they will not be uh, representing Africans because they are very aggressive and arrogant. That was in this and, you know, there were so many things that were happening at the time, but really, to be quite honest, we were very, very much supported by Irish women around the country because we had a very clear strategy, and the strategy was to go through the, uh, the National Women Council membership and ask the women, Waterford Women's Centre, Longford Women's Centre, will you give space for our... African women to be meeting uh, in these centers and also support them. So we were supported from the very beginning. I found migrant women, in particular African women, to be very courageous you know, and to be very confident. To leave your own home, to go to a country where you have no support is actually, you know, amazing that you're able to navigate the system, you're able to stand up even when you're told, no, you go back again. Um, And you'll find most of them, you know, they're trying to navigate the system. At the beginning, women worked quite a lot in jobs that they were not even employed, they were being exploited. Um, you know, there were those who uh, worked many jobs to be able to send money back home because they have had children um, at home. Some of them, you know, worked as nannies in, in other women's houses. Now things have changed, you know. Most of them feared for deportation. In 2004, uh, we demonstrated we did so many things. And uh, 17,000 were to be deported together with their children. That was reversed in 2005 at the beginning, and most of them, you know, were given the residency, but with the condition that they will not bring the children, if there are children out there or partners who are not here, they should not bring them, and they should become economically viable. Then we were hit by the economic crisis, you know, of the time. And so that did not happen. But the best thing that has happened since then, you know, majority of them have become citizens now. So they are citizens. They are still working on jobs that doesn't match their qualifications because that's still a huge problem. But at least they can work, even if it's care work. They can be able to work and get money, you know, maintain themselves. Some of us buy a car. It's a big deal for us. You know, some of us have houses. It's a very, very big deal. Some of us are able to walk out of abusive relationships. It's absolutely a big deal. And so things are happening, you know. uh, Many migrant women will reach their full potential because actually Ireland also offers them that opportunity to be able to do that. And it's only, it will only happen if we work in solidarity of ensuring Enora said it earlier, leaving no one behind. So we have to really uh, acknowledge that we are not a homogeneous group. You know, we have women with a disability. We have traveler women. We have lone parents. We have, uh, you know, LGBT. All these women have to be brought into our discussions. Even when they are absent in our meetings, we have to be talking about them. And so for me, I just uh, request you to continue to work, to work together in solidarity, to make Ireland a better place for all of us. We are making changes. And we have seen, I'm a witness of what has happened in Ireland. The island I want to live, I don't want to go to live in UK or Canada or Australia. This is a place I want to, you know, transfer because it's possible and my rich women all of us have shown that that is possible
2: thank you so much um, fantastic we actually asked everyone um to pick a woman that uh, has inspired them or they admire for having changed Ireland over the last 50 years and I haven't asked them what their who their women were so it'll be interesting to see if some people choose the same one so I'm gonna ask you Salome since you're you're there uh who did you choose
8: I was I struggled quite a lot because there are so many you know and some of them are even in this room but I really like uh, one of the women who have um inspired me quite a lot is Alpha Smith and mainly because you know I, I have seen Alpha Smith when we were starting the uh, the repeal, the amendment because it started a long time ago and she could call even me for a meeting and I said, oh, Suman doesn't stop, you know so I was very, very hard but then she's very persistent and she works very hard then I even sat in her class to teach me about, you know the history and feminism of Irish women so I've not only just gained uh, whatever she have fought for or we have fought for and we have achieved I've been educated by her and so for me, she's my role model she have inspired me well,
2: she's a role model for so many of us. Cheers. Alva Smith, the great woman. Uh, what about you, Sonia? That's two for Alva.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I pretty much knew this was going to happen, to be honest with you. And for everything that Alva has done, and not just what she's done, but the way she's done it, and the spirit of absolute selflessness and generosity with which she has persistently been the thorn in the sides of so many, um, with ultimate grace, I, I just think... Yeah, and she was probably my first exposure to activism. And she always looks great as well.
2: (laughs) Wherever she is, her ears are definitely burning anyway.
0: Susie, who did you pick?
7: Uh, Mary Robinson, the lawyer. Mary Robinson, not President Mary Robinson. Okay, so Mary Robinson, for people who don't know, in terms of the cases that she represented people on in the High and Supreme Court, you know, the Airy case... The cases in terms of tax individualisation, the Norris case, I think the importance of using the law to achieve your rights, that's what Mary Robinson would mean for me. And I'm also thinking of other women who took cases and thinking about Bridget McCall in terms of, you know, um, hepatitis cases and Vicky Phelan, and other women that have taken stands when they've been intimidated by men, mainly in corporations and governments, not to take cases to prove their rights. I'm also thinking about civil legal aid and the the right of people to have legal aid, you know, even, slow me, for the women... And that were, you know, their right to apply for citizenship, to have information, to know your rights, all of those things are so important. And they're all sort of wrapped up in Mary Robinson as a person for me in terms of the brave stand that she took.
6: Sarah, hello. who's Hi. yours? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, Alva was top of my list yeah. as well. I mean, it, just because we were all so involved in repeal and she had been doing it for decades. And I th- there was a line in my most recent show, Haunted, and it was um, Irish women had spoken about these things before, relentless heroic campaigners added for decades when they seemed like lonely outliers. Um, and Alva was very much on my mind with that. But there was something about that moment, and that was where I was going to say Alva, and then I changed it just before I came in here, but I changed it inspired by Alva <laughs> to we really are incredible when we work together. And... That the relentless heroic campaigners were out there and they were taking the um the unpopularity <laughs> um, and, and the being shouted down and being vilified, all of that on all of our behalfs. And that was an, an incredible service. But there was something in the air, something changed. We'd all just had enough and everyone just galvanized and got yeah. together and there are the, the women who were in Leitrim or Roscommon or and canvassing lonely farms where they do you have a car how are you going to get there to canvas those women are the ones that really really inspire me and though that was the bit of magic that got us over the line and that's what will get us keep us moving forward as that pendulum comes flying back in our faces it's it's all of us working together we're going to wrap
2: up now, but we're going to leave you with one more song from Sharon. And she's amazing. So, uh, Sharon, what have you got for us? Get up here.
3: The next song I have is a song I wrote called Feeling Free. And basically the song was, without making it a bit boring, we struggle a lot with mental health um, issues in our community so the men are very tough you know and they have this big front or whatever so I was looking at my husband one day and I won't like tell you what I was calling him in my head but I was like mmm you know and he was so grumpy and contrarian kicking the horse buckets around and whatever. And then he took out his mare his female horse and the, the four-wheeler cart and he put the mare on and I could instantly see him calm and and a smile come and a little laugh and he would a fag in the mouth and a red bull. And he was like, you know what, I'm just going to bring this horse out for a drive. So then all the children ran out with like bags of sweets and stuff. And they were like, can we go as well? And within 15 minutes, a female horse put my husband and lifted all the mood so much. So when I wrote this song, the very first thing that was said to me was, I give that song to a man. That's a man song and it made me more determined to um, have it as mine so this is Feeling Free everybody clap along if you feel like it Where will we crush today We crush to Port
4: manic Beach Where the air is clear And all I can hear is the pounding of our feet Feeling free like I should be A love, taking care of the sound Here she sets me free Let's me be me From miles we hip my old griddle on this spring day. Laughs that the goddess on the back with their bit of pector having great outcrack. Feeling free, like I should feel of taking care. This how mere she sets me free, let's me be me. And this I'll drive on the four-wheeler. We're here at last, we stop for a chat. Red bull in a fact before we head back. Forget my cares. In the views. This is the life I choose and choose. Feeling free like I should be. Love taking care of the mere She sets me free, lets me be me. This I'll drive the four wheeler.
3: Clap along, everyone. You might as well go on for a minute. <laughs> you get up and dance if you want to. <laughs>
4: Today we're crushed to Port Marnock Beach Where the air is clear and all I can hear Is the pounding of our feet Feeling free like I should be Love taking care of the sound where she sets me free, let's me be me And this I'll drive on the 4 wheeler.
3: All very much
2: I really do hope you enjoyed that what a woman Sharon Ward is I all of our guests were so fantastic. I'll be tapping along to that song for a while now and I just want to wish you from both of us from Kathy and I a very happy International Women's Day. There were a lot of people who helped make that event so special and I want to thank all the staff at the Mansion House the Lord Mayor Caroline Conway the National Women's Council and of course everyone on the podcast Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan who produced and JJ Vernon who was on sound. That's it from us do get in touch with your comments about the episode Episode we're on social at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the women's podcast at IrishTimes.com. Happy International Women's Day again. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time.
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.